Well, as you know, we're taking up the book of James this morning, so let's turn to James chapter 1. And I want to read the first 11 verses, and this will certainly help us, I think, today as we try to look at verses 9 through 11. James chapter 1, and beginning with verse 1, reading down through verse 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. But let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And then our text. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. But let the rich, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Verse 12 gives us a clue that from actually from verses 2 all the way through verse 12 itself, all of this is in some way related He says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Here again, he's bringing in the theme that he had spoke of at the very beginning regarding temptations there in verse 2. So we can surmise from this that verses 2 down through verse 11, that it is in some way and in some manner related. And as we saw back in verse 2, James is exhorting, his readers, on how to behave in the midst of of, uh, tribulation and temptations. We see, first of all, he tells us that we are to account them joy. In fact, all joy, as he says there in verse 2. Secondly, we are to exercise knowledge in the midst of our trials in regards to the fact that trials do Test our faith. We're to know that. He says, knowing in verse 3, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And then the third exhortation, he tells us that we are to reckon that the trying of our faith not only works patience, but, excuse me, it does work patience, but that patience is to continue. It is a fruit of tribulation and trial. Fourthly, we're to let it go on, he says, unto maturity in this situation. And, of course, a Christian who finds himself in such a providence will know and feel, at his, even at his best, that he lacks wisdom in these things. So then, James encourages us here to seek wisdom in prayer, realizing that God is a very liberal, a very bountiful God who awaits then to answer such petitions from his people. And then... In our context, we also saw the warning that we must ask all these things in faith or otherwise God will not hear us. 
And this all, you remember, is under the overarching theme of what it means to live or to have true religion. Verse 26 and 27, you remember, we said we're kind of the pivotal verses of this whole book. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridle not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. A man enters into true religion, as we see in verses uh, 18 on down, is through the Word of God. As, it is, as we hear it or as we read it, we're begotten again by the grace of Almighty God. And this is part and parcel of our walk in Christ, our being matured in the things of the Lord, is that we do face these trials and these temptations. So we can say again, true religion will be tried and tested. So don't think that, oh no, what's wrong? What's wrong with my faith? What's wrong with my religion? When something bad or something awful comes your way. Just recognize and account here, as James has been teaching us, and also Peter, as we saw in his works as well, that this is part and parcel of the Christian life. You will have trials. You will have troubles. You will have tribulations. And it's all for a purpose. And again, we won't get into all those purposes here this morning. But we need to realize that true religion will be helped on in its way by the trying of our faith. And that's one of the things that the Puritans would say. We ought to improve our trials. They didn't mean they make our trials better, but it means learn from them and see how that they somehow affect us in this true religion that we say that we possess. Now, as we come to the text of our sermon this morning, we see that James now draws our attention to humility amidst our trials. Humility in the midst of of our trials. So we could say this as well as we take that overarching theme, true religion, and say that true religion then will consist in true humility. Without humility, brethren, there is something definitely wrong with our religion. There's something wrong with our Christianity. God has much and a lot to say in regards to pride in the Christian walk in life. I realize it's very popular today on bumper stickers. But with God, it's not. Pride is not a virtue. Pride is a sin. It is a transgression of the word and law of God. But James has some words for us here in regards to all of this in verses 9 through 11. So the first thing I want us to see again is that he tells us here to rejoice. Back in verse 2, you remember, we're to count it all joy when we fall into divers' temptations. But now we're called upon to rejoice. Look at that in verse 9. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. How about that? Rejoice. We're to joy. So rather than James being this gloomy kind of a fellow as a lot of commentaries make him out to be, he's just the opposite, isn't he? He is a man who tells us that we ought to have joy when we fall into temptations. That as brethren who are of low degree, when we're exalted and are exalted, we're to be rejoiceful in these things. doesn't sound like a sad folk to me, do you? sounds like someone who has a grasp of what true Christianity is all about. 
It can be a happy life. It can be a life that is given over to, to the joys of Christ and the joys of, true, of, of even in tribulation and, in, and tr- sorrows and trials and temptation. So James is not foreign to that. And neither should we. Running around looking like a sad puss is not necessarily a Christian attitude. It's true, there are places to mourn and there are times to mourn. In fact, James is going to even tell us that later on in the text. But as I said there, that's looking at a different angle of our Christianity. So there is an aspect of Christianity which is to be joyful. And yes, there is an aspect of our Christianity which is to be sorrowful and mournful. Blessed are they that mourn. These are not contradictions. These are just the different facets of the Christian walk. The Christian walk is just not one thing. And that's where a lot of us get off on our misbalance in our Christian walk is that we'll latch on to one thing and then that's what we run with until we drop. And the sad thing is we'll drop a lot quicker because we're only running with that one thing. And that spends all of our gas, all of our energy rather than being a balanced Christian who tries to see all these things, all this symmetrical dealings that God has with us in our Christian walk. How many people fail in their Christian walk to see these things? Here again, we see the balance of God's Word. And as we mentioned this morning, why I try to attempt not just to harp on one theme. And I said if I had a theme to harp on, it would be justification by faith alone. I love harping on that string. But... That's not all the Word of God, is it? The Word of God is a balanced meal for all of us. There's milk for the babes and there's meat for the strong. It's the bread of life for all of us. And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Not particular portions of God's Word, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Well, here is an instance then. Brethren, we have the duty to rejoice. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, notice here, this is addressed to the brother. And I know the word brother sometimes can mean just a kinsman, just such as my brother or your brother, or even a distant kinsman. Remember, uh, Paul, in addressing the Israelites, it sometimes calls them brethren. But here it's speaking of, I believe, in the Christian sense, as a brother in Christ. James here is identifying these with himself. Let the brother, as he is, of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. So notice the addressee here. It's addressed to the Christian, to the brother, to the believer in Jesus Christ. And this particular person who is addressed are further qualified by what? Look at the text again. Let the brother of low degree this is how Paul, or excuse me, James, qualifies this individual Christian. He is a Christian of low degree. Now, this low degree is not speaking in regards to spiritual graces. That is, he's someone who just can't get it together spiritually speaking. He, he has a lot of sins in his life. He doesn't get a lot of victories. He, he's really struggling with indwelling sin and such as that. That's not what I believe, at least in my understanding of this passage, that this is dealing with it at all. But it's dealing with the brother who is of low degree as far as outward circumstances are concerned. The reason I say that because of the contrast in verse 10 with the rich. 
The brother of low degree here is not the poor little Christian who is having a hard time. And he's he's like uh, one of the uh, persons mentioned in Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Halt alone, you know, and he's always needing that push to get into to the celestial city like some Christians just naturally need that. That's not what he's dealing with here. The brother of low degree are those who what we would say are just the common folks of life as far as outward situations are concerned. The common lot brethren of God's people have been these very things. They've been of a low degree. The common lot of God's elect are not the rich and the affluent. They're not the ones who are dwelling in high stations in life. But they're just the plain old common folks. The you and me's. Just us. Not the highly educated. Not the rich. Not the famous. But just plain old folks like us. That's the common lot of God's people. That's whom He has chosen in this world. The majority. Or just people like us. The regular, run-of-the-mill Joe. Goes to work, has his jobs, comes home, sees his family, and all those kinds. Just a regular person. Not the fake people you may see on some stupid TV sitcom and how they live with their high in their mind. No, it's just us, plain old folks, who have their struggles every day to make ends meet and those sorts of things. Paul reminds us of this in the book of 1 Corinthians. Here, the Corinthians had this problem. They were uh, exalting the high ups. And Paul reminds them, look, uh, that's not really where it's at, he says. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. And he tells us the reason why, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Again, notice who he calls. It's the lowly. It's not the mighty. It's not the wise men. It's not the noble. It's the foolish things of this world. Now, it's, we can be very thankful that he does call some rich and some wise and some many in this world. But that's the point. They're not very many. How many King Solomons do you read of in the Old Testament? How many Davids? How many Abrahams? How many Jacobs and Isaacs who had all their wagons full? You don't see a whole lot of those kind of folks, do you? But the majority of the elect of God, the majority of believers are just common folks. The vulgar, as uh, they would say in the old days. Common. Not in a vulgar sense of the meaning, bad sense. We've taken that and perverted it or changed the meaning of it. But vulgar in the sense of common. James chapter 2, verse 5 says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, had not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He had promised to them that love Him? Here's the question. Look, has not God called the poor of this land? And brethren, if God in His sovereign grace and His sovereign dealings over His people exalts us, 
then we need to be thankful and we need to be humble. But, James says further, he says, he that is of low, low degree that is exalted, what's he to do? He's to rejoice. So, think about it. Here we are in our low degree. We're brethren. We recognize our position in life. We are just common folks. And then we're exalted. We're advanced. And whether this means now in particular the temporal or the spiritual, which I do believe now he's contrasting here, then if we have been spiritually advanced, we are rich in grace. And we are rich in mercy then. Yes, to our outward circumstances, we may still have a hard time making ends meet. We live from paycheck to paycheck type of a thing. We may still be men of low degree. But inwardly, brethren, we are rich in grace. Are we not? Think of this. God doesn't call the rich and the, wise and the mighty and the noble. He's called us. And He's given us a heart to know Him. Which the majority of the world... We'll never know. There are few that are on the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Listen to some of these riches we possess in First Timothy two. Excuse me, First Peter two. I was turning to Timothy. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. He says, "But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him." who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Notice how God views us. We're a chosen nation. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a peculiar people. The great privileges that we possess as believers in Christ Jesus, we have been then, in that sense, been exalted. And brethren, we ought to rejoice. Ephesians talks about how even in the purpose and plan of God as God is from the beginning and has planned all this from the beginning tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of chapter 1 verse 3 of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Before the world began, we started out rich in Christ. Why? Because we had the spiritual blessings given to us in Him before the foundation of the world. Revelation 5 speaks again of something of these trophies that we own of His grace. Revelation 5, verse 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood, by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Not bad for common folk, is it? That's pretty good, isn't it? Those who are just a plain old nobodies, a face in the crowd. And by the grace of Almighty God, we are suddenly a king and priest and will reign on earth. All because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Well, with such news as this then, how should we react? Well, notice again back in our text... He tells us here that we should 
rejoice. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. And the idea of the word rejoice here is the idea of, of glorying in these things. Not a proud thing, but a glorying in the sense that there are ours by grace. And I have them. Remember in Jeremiah, he's told several things not to glory in. But glory in this, that you know God. Not too many bumper stickers like that on cars, are they? It's, I'm proud to be this, I'm proud to be that. James tells us we ought to rejoice when we are brethren of low degree and we're exalted in the graces of Christ. And think with me, brethren, how often do we forget those rich privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus? How often we have to be continually reminded in Scripture of the great privileges and the high station you and I have. How exalted we are by the grace and by the mercy of God. This is one of the big helps that we do have in trying to live the Christian life is the fact that he has told us these things and by virtue of these things we live in light of them. Again, Paul reminding the Ephesians of what they once were, where we had our conversation and so forth. But he says, but God, here's the contrast. You were dead in sins and you walked like this. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, where they loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I think now we can see perhaps a little bit why we can count it all joy when we fall into divers temptation. It's true, those things that he says in verses 3 through uh, 7 certainly are incentives to persevere through tribulations. They are certainly reasons as to why we ought to joy. But here's a reason why we ought to rejoice. Because we've been exalted in Christ. Something the world knows nothing of. And would laugh. Can you imagine standing before some king in this world with all of his riches? And then you tell him, ah, by the way, I'm a king too. Well, what kingdom do you want? Well, my kingdom is in heaven. I sit and I reign with Christ Jesus. Can you imagine telling some Saudi Arabian sheik over there that? The Muslim would laugh in your face with me. But brethren, it's no laughing matter to us. It's true, isn't it? We are kings and priests. Being blessed far beyond any earthly riches in this life. As we'll show in the application how sad it is that there will be many who will turn away from these riches to have the pleasures of sin for a season. And then spend an eternity in hell. Because they chose the way of the world rather than the way of heaven with all of its true riches and glory. Well, we see our exhortation, Christian, and that's to rejoice. Those of us who are just plain old Joes, plain old Joe Christian, we are to rejoice when we're made exalted. The second exhortation is found there in verse 9. He says, let the... uh, Excuse me, verse 10. But the rich... Now he's going to talk to the rich. 
But the rich, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. So now we see the exhortation to the rich. There is some disagreement among commentators as to whether the rich here are saved or lost. Some say, nope, it's not Christian. These are just rich people who are outside of the boundaries of the saving grace of God. They're not Christians. But I would have to take the opposite view. I believe that these are speaking of rich brethren. As I said, he does call some, not many, but some. And, of course, James will address and he will rebuke the disobedient rich later on in the book. But this does not seem to be the case here at the moment. And the point is, though, is that the rich, when he is made low in his circumstances, I think this is the contrast, he, too, is to rejoice. Because, but the rich and the, and the idea that hangs there, he is to Rejoice in that he is made low. When he is made humble by the grace and by the providence of God. That he is made low in his circumstances. In his outward extremities. His outward circumstances. He is to rejoice. When he's made humbled by the grace of Almighty. When he reads of these great privileges that he didn't earn by his riches, but they were given to him despite his riches. Because the Bible teaches there are a few, you remember, who will go to heaven rich. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. That's pretty hard. You ever tried to thread a, a camel? How many of Tried to thread a, a camel through a needle. I don't think there's anyone here who's tried that. You say, well, of course not, because it just wouldn't work. That's exactly the way it is for a rich man to go to heaven. So it's impossible. Well, what's impossible with man is possible, though, with God. And so there will be the Abrahams, there will be the Isaacs, and there will be the Jacobs and the Solomons and the Davids in heaven. But very few. We need to be rejoicing, rich person, that in the providence of God, he has caused you to be made low. And then notice thirdly here, uh, beginning in 10b, as they call it, uh, the why for the rich. The why. But the rich in that he is made low because, and he gives us an illustration. Here again, James begins with one of those very brilliant, very plain illustrations that to me is just that really strikes at the head of what he's trying to say. It's a very clear illustration. What is this illustration that he gives? Look at this, children, how good it is. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. That is the rich man. For the sun is no sooner risen upon a burning heat, but it withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth. And the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. What's he trying to show us here with this illustration? Well, first of all, the illustration has to be understood. 
He's illustrating here something of flowers. You know how beautiful flowers are. You plant them and they grow. He talks about a flower who's planted. It's like of the grass. And how in the morning coolness with the dew on the ground, it just shoots right up. But when the midday sun begins to bear down upon it, what happens to that flower? It begins to wilt, doesn't it? In our backyard, my wife has planted all sorts of flowers. And in particular, I can see the ones that are closer to the, uh, the patio there. Someday in the mornings, because of the dew, they're very lively. Their heads are all up, the flowers are, and they look fine. By, if, I, if someone doesn't get out there and give them a little more water before the day's over, they're all just kind of drooped over. They're just kind of hanging there. And the beauty's all gone. Well, that's the illustration that James uses here to illustrate the rich and the ways of the rich. They have the fine things in life. They have the money. They have the riches. They have the nice cars. They have the jobs. They have the beautiful homes. They have the bank accounts. All of that is very temporal, isn't it? And that's the point. Because what happens to all those sooner or later? What happens to the bank account, the money, and the riches, and the homes? Won't they in time all be gone? When the noonday sun arises and beats down upon them, they will wilt away. You've heard the saying, you can't take it with you. That's exactly right. It's a true saying. You cannot. Riches of these sort are not eternal. They're only temporal. They only last a while. And then they're gone. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians why it is lawful to use these things. We need to be careful. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31. And they that use this world as not abusing it. Why? For the fashion of this world passeth away. We see this just in fads, do we not? What used to be very popular is no longer popular anymore, is it? The old cars on the road that, used, that are old, they're not there anymore. Are they? Very few. There are those who are collectors and they keep them and they have to keep them up. But the fact of the matter is, not too many people are driving tin lizzies around, are they? Those are old cars, children. They're just gone. Why? Because they wear out. They become old. And they're just tossed away. Why? Because they're just these temporal things. And here's where the rich need to be careful. Just because they have all of these nice things doesn't mean they're necessarily signs of grace or of spiritual favor with God. Because there are a lot of rich people in the world who are not Christian. In fact, these riches then become a curse and a snare. That is why we see so many warnings towards the rich in Scripture. Look over, i just give you a few. Job, and you can listen or you can turn there. It matters little to me. But when I get there, I'm going to read it. Job 14 and verse 2. I hope I got it. He said, a man is born of a woman. Verse 1 is a, 
is of few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. There's Job speaking. First John 2 tells us not to love the world. Neither the things are in the world. Why? Because the love of the Father is not in us. And he tells on to say that these things, he says, will pass away. Chapter 2 and verse 17. Oops, not in first John, excuse me. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Psalm 37, another warning or a fact that he tells us in regards to these things. He tells us in verse 35, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree, similar to what the elect do. Yet he passeth away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I saw him, but he could not be found. Why? Because these are not forever. Mark 10. And here is that warning. I gave a few moments ago about those who have riches and trust in them. He tells us in Mark 10 and verse 24, And the disciples were astonished at His words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And notice their response to this. And Jesus, and they were astonished out of measure and saying among themselves, who then can be saved? You see, riches, con- uh, riches complicate the matter. They don't help. That's why David says, don't make me so poor that I don't, run, uh, I don't steal, but don't make me so rich. That I forget God. Why? Because that's what they do. The warning our brother gave a few weeks ago preaching that very thing. When we get all of our toys and we get all the pretties and the niceties of this life, we become settled and self-satisfied and we forget God. We're like Nebuchadnezzar. Look at my kingdom. Look at all that I have built. And we forget God. That's the danger. That's the trouble. Well, let me give some inferences then from our passages that we read this morning and hopefully expounded in your hearing. First of all, how hard it is to convince folks of these seemingly simple truths. Especially young people. You know, they've been at home and now they want to go out and taste the world because they see something out there they see the glitter of it as so to speak and it looks so appetizing and so much better than what they have and they forget that all of this is going to pass away they forget that it's not really real as far as God is concerned and they'll pass away unfortunately so will they it's a very difficult lesson for young people And I have to admit, it's a difficult lesson for all of us, isn't it? That godliness is better than world, wealth, and fame. The best that the world could offer us in its temporal affairs 
doesn't hold a candle to the grace of godliness, even in its smallest of measure given to us. The weakest of faith is better than all the riches that the world could give us. You see, everybody needs to hear that. Well, even godly preachers need to hear it. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is written to a godly man. Look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, Flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. You see, even preachers need to hear it, don't they? How much more to those in the pew? And we know that the world and all of its glitter is certainly a strong temptation to us, isn't it? If I could just get one more thing, I know I'll be happy. And then I'll stop. Nope. You just make way for another thing. And then another thing. And then another thing. You're not content with godliness. If we work so hard at being godly as we are making a name and a life in this life, how much godly will we be today? If we put all the effort that people put in their education and their job security and their bank accounts and all of that stuff that we seem to think we have to all do, if we put that much effort in growing in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus, just think of the bounds that we would be growing in. But we don't, do we? How many of us remember in school and taking an exam, whether in college or high school or grade school or grammar school, how many of us remember the hours that we put over a test and having our heads in the book and studying our notes? How many have done that with their Bibles and the sermons they hear? Not many. So well, that's your job, preacher, to labor like that. And I agree, I, I, that is my job. But you have a soul to win just as I do. A heaven to gain just as I do. A man will hazard his soul for the world. Jesus even warns, but what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What will it profit? Nothing. The answer to that question is nothing. The only thing he will gain is hell and destruction and the eternal wrath itself. That's where it leads to. And then secondly, I speak my comments now to the rich. 
Look in First Timothy again. And this is a pastor having to tell rich people this. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. And the word there, to communicate, means to give, and not in order to make a profit. Psalm 15 ought to be read sometimes in relationship to that. Verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So those of you who are rich among us, if there are those, take heed. Lay hold of eternal life rather than your riches. Trust in the living God rather than in what you have or what you may obtain. Thirdly, to all of us, this also applies. Because we live fairly well, even the poorest among us, don't we? We're all rich in that aspect. We live in a rich nation and thus we receive some of the benefits of a rich nation. Rich, yes, in goods, poor spiritually, but nonetheless rich in those things. And we profit from them. Let us take heed then to these things as well. David reminds us, a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. If you could multiply all the crooks in the world and you take all of their lot, he says, a little that a righteous man hath is better than all the riches. Proverbs. Good place to go at this moment. Proverbs 15. And again, this has much to say, this book, about such things. Again, he's dealing with a rich son here. This is Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that's being addressed. The inheritor of Solomon's goods. And Solomon knew it. Read his book in Ecclesiastes. He said, it's a vanity. I know that all I've accumulated is going to go to someone else someday. I can't take it with me. Well, it was his son who was going to get it. So he warns him here in chapter 15 and verse 16. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. A stalled ox means you've got a big fat ox um, in your barn and he's fatted and he's ready for the kill. You have it, your neighbor doesn't. He says it's better to have love, it's better to have righteousness than any of these things. And then note, go to uh, Hebrews 11. All of this is easy to say. And we may say, oh yeah, you're right, preacher, let's do this. But you know, it takes faith to see things this way. Because when we look out, we do see the glitter, don't we? We do see the lusting after. We would, our own hearts war against the lusts of this world, the scripture says. So we see the reality of that. Well, brethren, this is where faith comes in. And I'm speaking of justifying faith here. That's what chapter 11 is dealing with of Hebrews. Notice what he did with, uh, with uh, Moses here. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which would have been quite a thing for Solomon, for, excuse me, for uh, Moses. Choosing rather, this is what his choice was, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God 
than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming, notice this, and notice what he's saying here carefully. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, that is the trials and the adversities he was going to go through for being a Christian heaped up upon him, even by his own nation, much less the Egyptian nation, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. How many of us look at it that way? That the things of Christ, in fact, those great riches we spoke of a while ago, having being seated in heavenly places, that's not what Paul is speaking of here, of, of uh, Moses. He's talking about the trials that Moses got for being faithful. The adversities that Moses faced as he was under Christ. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than everything that was in Egypt. Can we say that? You see, we won't be able to say it without faith. But something else moved him as well. And brethren, this is, this is lawful. It's holy. And it's good. Because the Bible says it. Verse 26. For or because he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Solomon, or I keep saying Solomon, Moses knew what the end of all this would be. It would be those eternal riches of grace in heaven for all eternity. And he said he had recompense unto that reward. And that's why, again, he left it all. You see, heaven's glory then was put before him and he chose that rather than the riches in Egypt. And that's what we're going to have to do. By faith, we're going to have to view heaven with all of its glory and all of its riches that we may not taste of in this world. We may have nothing but the reproach of Christ in this world. But we'll take that, esteeming that better than what all of these things around us can give us. And that done by faith. To be a Christian, someone says, and to live the poorest of the poor will be infinitely better, far better, than be the riches and yet than and have riches and yet perish in our sins for all eternity. To be a Christian and live the poorest of the poor will be infinitely far better than to have all the riches of this world and yet perish in our sins. Do not think riches will be a help in the day of judgment, my friend. They won't. The Pharisees thought that. They were foolish enough to believe that very thing. It will be no help whatsoever. We will be standing, as it were, naked before God. So repent. Repent of your wicked ways, sinner, and seek mercy that is in Christ Jesus. There's no other way. And then these riches of heaven will be ours. And they'll be yours in Christ Jesus.